This podcast was sponsored by the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Whether you are a student with a professional interest in academic Jewish studies, a prospective educator in Jewish secondary schools who wants to make a difference in the lives of your students and your community, or simply a person who seeks intellectual challenge and growth, the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies is the place for you. For more information, visit yu.edu slash revel. Hi, my name is A.J. Berkovitz, and I'm a professor of Jewish liturgy at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. I'm also a Revel alumnus and a YC alumnus, and I have the absolute pleasure today of sitting with and speaking with Professor David Stern, who is the Harry Starr Professor of Classical and Modern Jewish and Hebrew Literature and Professor of Comparative Literature at Harvard University. He's published numerous articles, edited numerous books, and has authored several, including Parables in Midrash and Midrash in Theory. He's also edited several really fascinating Haggadot, including the Monk's Haggadah and the Washington Haggadah. And most recently, um, he's published a book called The Jewish Bible, A Material History, published in 2017. And to quote or paraphrase the author, it makes a nice bar or bat mitzvah gift. And I'm, in the context of this conversation, I will be asking him why. Um, it's a real pleasure to be talking with you today. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I tend to view academics, and particularly Jewish studies academics, as superheroes. Um, when we were four or five years old, and hardly any of us wake up and say, we want to be a Jewish studies historian and like really explore that world. Um, there's usually an origin story involved, and I'm really curious, what's your story? How did you go from, I'm curious, to uh, being a professor of Jewish studies, exploring Haggadah and Midrash? Um. It's a long story, but I'll, I'll try to make it as briefly as possible. I actually had no intention whatsoever of becoming a professor of Jewish studies. Um, uh, I originally was a writer, and uh, I wrote plays, I wrote a novel, I published a number of stories, fiction, and um, for lack of a better thing to do, I actually went to graduate school in comparative literature. Um, and my original intention was to study Greek, medieval Latin, and medieval English. Um, I'd gone to day schools, and I actually had learned in uh, Biavna in Israel for two years. So I had all the tech skills, but I actually have never, had never taken a course in Jewish studies. Uh, but the year after I graduated college, I went to Columbia, and before I went to graduate school, or the year after I graduated college, let's put it that way, because I hadn't yet decided to go to graduate school, I read Gershom Sholem. And, uh, and that was a, uh, a, a a life-transforming experience. Um, I suddenly realized that Judaism uh, was exciting <laughs> and had ideas. <laughs> and, uh, and subsequently, I decided to go to graduate school, and I went to Harvard in comparative literature. But again, planning to study Greek, medieval Latin, and medieval English. But because I'd gotten interested through Sholem in Jewish studies, uh, I, uh, I decided to take courses with Professor Isidore Tversky. And, uh, and I just used to take courses with him. I mean, I found it interesting. Um, and I gradually got more interested in Jewish studies. Um, but it really wasn't a primary field. But at a certain point, I decided to switch to the medieval English for medieval Hebrew. 
And, uh, and I did medieval Hebrew as a field as a graduate student, but I started writing a dissertation on uh, medieval tragedy. It was going to be a very short dissertation because there isn't a lot of medieval tragedy. The best um, kind. But uh, <clears throat> and then I was fortunate to get a uh, a fellowship that gave me a lot of time, and uh, and when I had this fellowship, I woke up early one morning and said to myself, "Do I want to teach Shakespeare for the rest of my life?" And in the preceding year, with a friend, I'd begun to study midrash. I actually had never studied midrash before that. And, you know, really sort of a midrashic text. I, I read uh, the Shirta uh, in the Mechilta with Juden Golden's uh, translation and commentary with a friend, Alan Mintz, uh, Hello, the late Alav Shalom, uh, passed away tragically last year. And it was really Alan who introduced me to midrash. And, uh, and I got quite fascinated by midrash because I'd been studying a lot of sort of postmodern literature, uh, uh, post-structuralism, and I looked at Midrash, and it actually looked to me like Kafka, like Borges, um, you know, this sort of literature that is sort of in this kind of neverland between normal literature, conventional literature, and sort of criticism or theory. And, uh, um, and because I had all this time, I simply decided to junk the medieval tragedy and to oh, go into gosh. Midrash. And I felt I could really use my, the Greek training I had, which I knew I had a pretty serious training in classics and my literary theory. And, uh, and I thought I could do something new with Midrash. And at that point, there were not that many scholars working on Midrash. Mm, right. And you and, certainly did. Um, I think right, Midrash has been your I guess, first love and Yeah, so I sort of, yeah, so I, it, so I, I wrote a dissertation actually uh, on parables in Midrash, which eventually became my first book. And um, and I went into it really uh, because it was a kind of intellectual puzzle. I mean, I, I wanted to figure out exactly what you know what it was between these two different realms, how it exists in this kind of gray space between literature and uh, and theory and uh, or commentary, whatever you want to call it. And uh, and I wrote the dissertation, and then I spent about the first 15 years of my life, uh, of my scholarly career, um, you know, working on Midrash. What happened was that after about 15 well, years— we'll, we'll get there in a moment. Okay. Let's just focus on Midrash for just a yeah. second, um, because it's so crucial to your own work. Right. Um, what do you think are some misnomers about Midrash, um, and particularly misnomers that your work could correct or does correct? Um, what, is, what, are, what should our audience know about Midrash? What are the, what's wrong? Well, one misnomer is that it's not a legitimate way of reading the Bible. Um, oh, that's or that fascinating. it wasn't a legitimate way for the, uh, for the rabbis. This is the way the rabbis read, read the Bible. It's not systematic, but it definitely uh, uh, reflects a real reading practice um, and, uh, and a specific way in which they read the Bible, and they, they actually were reading it. I mean, you don't, uh, a Beit Midrash is a house, Midrash is, is the rabbinic term for studying the Bible. It's not that you study the Bible and then you do Midrash. A Beit Midrash is not a house of Midrash, it's a house of study. And, uh, and Midrash is the way the rabbis studied the Bible. 
Um, you know, partly it's a form of research, of delving into the text. But for them, it really was the way that they studied the Bible, which isn't to say that it's one thing. It's not. I mean, the challenge of Midrash is that it's unsystematic, but for some of us, that's also one of its real attractions and its pleasures. Um, so if I can suss yeah. out for a moment, at least, if this is this a correct interpretation of, of what you're getting at, at least for our audience, what um, we've come now to know as pshat, right, simply was not an option for the rabbis. Yeah, well, they encountered it only as midrash, and yeah, that no, they, they, yeah, they definitely did not see midrash as something different than pshat. I mean, they had a sense of pshat. Um, they, they they use the term pshat. Exactly what they mean by it is um, is uh, it's difficult always to say. But um, uh, it's definitely not what we mean by pshat. But what most people, the way most people use the word pshat even today, is wrong. Um, it's uh, there's no such thing as one type of pshat. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there are countless parshanim commentators who use the term, and each of them seems to use it in its own way, whether it's the grammatical sense, whether it's the authorial sense, whether it's the historical sense, whether it's the rational philosophical sense, or whether it's the contextual sense, and uh, or the obvious sense. I mean, that's, uh, that's the way that somebody uh, like Sadia would mean the term. I, mean, I don't remember if he uses actually the word pshat, mm -hmm. but uh, he has other Judeo-Arabic terms that are equivalent. But uh, but uh, but it's, it's not something opposed to pshat in any way. It's the way that they read the Bible. So you'd mentioned that you used literary theory as a, as a means of unpacking the way of understanding how Midrash functions. And we then connected that to the distinction between Pshat and Drash, and if such distinction exists. One of the interesting trends in modern Bible scholarship has been this literary turn and analyzing the Bible through the very literary theories that you've mentioned. So is it fair to say that what you're after is Pshat of Midrash? Um, or, or rather, more directly, or at least in apposition, how do you imagine the relationship between the literary study of the Bible and the literary study of Midrash? Well, yeah. Well, the literary study of the Bible, I view, is something quite apart from um, the literary study of Midrash, except for the fact that both are literary studies. And there's, you know, and, and somebody who's going to look at either the Bible or Midrash as literature is going to look at the things that students of literature look at, namely form, how form actually informs the message, how the message helps shape the form. Um, you know, it's it's th these are sort of the typical things that literary students uh, find. What was most interesting about um, my encounter between uh, theory and midrash was that, as I said a second ago, what initially attracted me to midrash was that it looked to me when I first saw, studied it like postmodern theory or postmodern literature, Borges, Kafka, Roland Barthes, what have you. Walter Binyamin. Um, and that's what initially drew me to Midrash and actually gave me um, sort of this feeling, a false feeling that these tools would somehow let me solve the problem of Midrash. Do you feel like you solved the problem so, of Midrash? No, but what happened was that actually the more I studied Midrash, the more I realized how unlike postmodern critical theory Midrash really was. But paradoxically, the only way I was able to define that difference 
was by using the critical language of theory. So it wasn't that, you know, I used theory actually as a way of providing a critical terminology to distinguish between Midrash and between postmodern theory. And, uh, and that actually, I think, was quite fruitful. And, you know, and it was, there were other people who were trying to prove at the same time that they, the two really were identical. Uh, you know, there, there was, it, was a, it was an exciting time because uh, uh, there were about 15 minutes when uh, a number of literary, distinguished literary theorists. Like Derrida, and, yeah. Well, Derrida, Jeffrey Hartman, Harold Bloom, there were a whole bunch of people uh, suddenly discovered Midrash and discovered their Jewishness at the same time and really had this great interest. And, uh, and on the other hand, there were people like myself, and I wasn't the only person. Uh, Alan Mintz was somebody else. Uh, Jim Kugel was somebody else. There were a group of us who were also discovering, coming from literature to Midrash, but with greater you know, training and linguistic and you know, sort of Judaic backgrounds Fantastic. to deal with the literature. And there was this sort of extraordinary 15 minutes when these two different groups of people, you know, of intellectuals sort of encountered each other. And it really did change the field. It changed the field of Midrash dramatically. And from there, it changed the rest of rabbinic literature. Uh, the Bible's literature stuff had sort of started independently before that. But yeah, but the two sort of um, went together and... Uh, it was a very exciting moment. And I think the field is fortunate to have you as part of it. Um, let's talk about minute 16, though. So you've had a distinguished scholar and still have a distinguished scholarly career in Midrash. But at the same time, you've also really made a name for yourself as a historian of the book, examining Agadot and now this new publication, which I suggest everyone to read. Um, are or at these, least by. Or at least, well, there we go. <laughs> it's about the royalties, right? Um, do you see these as two distinct scholarly trajectories? Because, I mean, one very theoretical, the other deeply historical. Um, what caused you to move from one to the other? Uh, for about the first 15 years of my scholarly career in academia, uh, I worked on Midrash. And also medieval Hebrew literature somewhat. I was interested in, you know, sort of more literary aspects of classical Hebrew literature. But, um, but primarily Midrash. But after about 15 years of working on Midrash, um, I had what is, in fact, sort of the dirty secret of, uh, of academia, which is that, um, you know, after you write your first book, you have to write a second book. And, um, and that, you know, people deal with that in different ways. Some people sort of deepen their study of what they wrote their first book on. Um, I was very tired of uh, what I wrote my first book on by the time I finished. And, and I basically, um, I'd gone into, into Midrash because it posed certain intellectual puzzles to me. And at a certain point, I felt I had basically solved all those puzzles, those problems for myself. I mean, I still loved teaching Midrash. There were th still some things I wanted to write about Midrash, but it no longer fascinated me the way it had when I first went into it. And I was really looking around for something else to, uh, to do. I didn't know if I could find anything. Uh, but it was, it was sort of trying. And I started a bunch of different projects. And each one of them sort of floundered or I lost interest. 
And meanwhile, uh, I, was, I taught at the University of Pennsylvania then, and there was, a, uh, there was a faculty workshop that had been started by a professor of English named Peter Stallybrass on the material text, which was about the history of the book. And, uh, and I started, I was friendly with Peter, and I started going to this workshop, and I just went because it was really interesting. It was the most interesting thing at Penn at the time. Every week they had a different topic. It went from, you know, the Bible to Shakespeare. You know, it would be, every week would be different. And, uh, and it was very intellectually inter interesting. I used to go there and lurk, just sit there and just sort of, you know, take it in. And after about a year and a half or two years of doing this, a speaker must have canceled on Peter because he came up to me and said, would you like to give a paper? And I said, um, uh, well, I'd, I'd love to give a paper, but you know, there's nothing I really work on. I mean, I've been coming here, but this is not my field. And he said, well, couldn't you prepare something? And I said, yeah, but what, on, on what? And he said, well, you, what's that book you have? Um, what's it called? The Talmud? <laughs> with this sort of strange page format? He said, where does that come from? And I said, you know, that's actually a really interesting question. I have no idea. And I started, I went home and I started working on that. And I became totally obsessed by it. That was, that was how I first got into the field. And, um, and initially, uh, it didn't seem to me that it had any connection to my work on Midrash. Um, I was invited to give some lectures at the University of Washington, a series of lectures, and I sort of recklessly volunteered to give it on the Haggadah, the, uh, the Talmud. Which Haggadah would you recommend? Because this is like... My favorite Haggadah? Yeah. Um, Monk's Haggadah, right? We should use that for our seminar? Well, the Monk's Haggadah is an extraordinary Haggadah. It's the only Haggadah that's not kosher for a Pesach. And why is that? Because it's the Monk's Haggadah. I mean, it's, 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 it really is a... Uh, it's, Christians appropriated the Haggadah and turned it into a Christian book. It's an absolutely fascinating document, but it's not a um, it's not a kosher Haggadah. Um, uh, I like the Washington Haggadah actually quite a bit. I mean, not only because I've worked on it, but it has this kind of real uh, uh, sort of American egalitarianism about it. It's sort of very open to everybody, which is what a Seder should be. And, uh, and it has an extremely interesting story. I like books with stories. I mean, that's my uh, thing. So the was Washington that, Haggadah a lot, but um, but I was invited to give these lectures, and um, and I was I gave them on the Bible, the, the Talmud, the Machsor Sidur, and the Haggadah, and that's and in preparing those lectures, that's when I first started seriously learning about the Jewish book, and uh, in the course of doing that, well, after I gave the lectures, I had to publish. You agree to write a book based on the lectures. And I realized at that point that I couldn't write a book of that, you know, on these three books without doing the Bible as well. But I'd been afraid to do the Bible during the lectures because it's just too big a book. It's got an august history. It has, yeah, and it has an august history and there's an enormous amount of scholarship. And I'm not a Bible scholar and Bible scholars are notoriously mean and argumentative. But and Talmud scholars are, right? No, right. <laughs> but, just um, wanted to make sure. Uh, yeah. Um, but... Uh, when I started working on the Bible, I looked at a page of the Aleppo Codex and, uh, you know, of the, the facsimile of the Aleppo Codex, what, what it really looks like. The Aleppo Codex being? And being one of the earliest uh, uh, 
codices of the Hebrew Bible. They say the Hebrew Bible in a codex form, a book form, rather than in a scroll. And it has the Mesorah in it. I mean, these are one of the earliest examples of the Mesorah, which is this extraordinary corpus of annotations on the Bible. And I looked at it and I said, how do you read this page? And I actually went to a colleague, a professor of Bible, and asked him, how do you read the page? And he said, I don't know. I don't use this. I use BHS, you know, the, the modern, academic, critical, yes, modern critical uh, edition, Bible. which actually has its notes. You know, the, the Mesorah turned into notes. And I just got very interested in that page format. In the course of doing that, I came to the realization that we don't read texts. What we read are texts that have been inscribed on a writing surface in a specific way, whether it's in a scroll, whether it's in a codex, whether it has pictures, whether it has a commentary, what have you. And that, But the point is that the way the text is actually inscribed on the page has an enormous impact on how we read a text. And that's the only way we read a text. We don't read a text just words. A text is an abstraction. So let's follow that for a moment. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you've brought it to bear, but we see your passion and enthusiasm for for Jewish books. But why should why should a modern Jew care about this? What's the what are you trying to like? What's the argument for a for a modern Jew to care about the material condition of a book? What do they get out of it? Um, well, there's two reasons. One is that these these books are among the greatest uh, accomplishments, achievements of Jewish creativity literary, artistic, um, you know, real creativity in, in Jewish history. Uh, they really are, our, you know, our masterpieces. Um, so, and th some of these books, I mean, if you look at a medieval Ashkenazi Machsor, uh, you would never believe such a book existed. Um, these are spectacularly beautiful and extraordinarily meaningful books as objects. You know, and it's true of Bibles too, but uh, but say the Ashkenazi Machsor is one of the great achievements of Jewish culture, creativity. Um, when I gave those strum lectures, a lady walked up to me after my lecture on the Sidur Machsor and she said, wow, if there were Sidurim prayer books like this, I might actually go to synagogue. <laughs> so, which is yeah. true, and, the, and they're truly inspiring books. Um, and there's an entire history there that, uh, that especially modern Jews, uh, would do well to to connect to because it really is a way to connect to the Jewish past and also to their Jewish identities. I mean, these books really do speak to you. And in many ways, the object speaks to you more than actually the text in the book. Um, and, you know, and the books tell stories about themselves. And, you know, anybody who works with books knows that books are like people. And uh, they have lives, they have birth stories, they have lives, they have deaths, they have afterlives, careers. So if books are like people, Jewish books are like Jews. <laughs> Is that a and, good thing? <laughs> uh, and, no, and, you, and when you really look at books, you actually begin to, to, to see that and to feel that. So there's an enormous, it's a whole reservoir of, um, you know, of Jewish culture that really is, it's very accessible. Um, you don't have to know Hebrew to appreciate a Jewish book because it helps. <laughs> Absolutely. But there's a lot you can do even without, you know, with, with sort of weak Hebrew skills, let's say. 
And um, and you really can connect to those books in a way that uh, it can be very difficult to connect to an abstract text. That's amazing. Yeah. You mentioned before how reading is contingent on its material artifact and that it right. changes with the way medium media changes. Um, what are some of the changes in Jewish reading that you've noticed in the shift from the good old codex form of the book to digitization? How does, or to put it another way, how has the digitization of the Bible, the Talmud, affect its study? Okay, well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very good question, and it's not an easy question, and it's not the same for all Jewish books. Um, uh, at the end of my book on the Bible, uh, I talk about it in the epilogue. And in the case of the Bible, I actually don't see digitization making an enormous change in the way the Bible is read, except for the fact that with digital images now accessible on anybody's computer, people will be able to discover the history of the Bible as a material book, as a you know physical object. And there really is an extraordinarily glorious history there. And the Bible, the, the history of the Bible is the way the Jews have sort of claimed ownership of the Bible. And differentiated the Bible as the Jewish Bible from especially the Christian Bible. And when you look at the history of the Jewish Bible, which now anybody can do digitally, you know, with pretty easily, you can actually begin to discover that story. And it's a, it's a part of the Bible which is not necessarily obvious, even to Jews who know the Bible quite well, how it actually has functioned in that way. Um, but in terms of like concordances and uh, data search and so on, uh, I mean, the Bible isn't an, in the end that big a book, um, you know, and there's been, it, it's been studied pretty intensively. So I'm not sure, if anything, what the, what the Bible shows is that actually digitization may not make such a great change in the way it's studied. In the case of the Talmud, it's completely different because here, for example, you have all these manuscripts um, which previously had been inaccessible and which now students can study and can compare and you can solve a lot of different problems with the Talmudic text. And this has even made inroads into Haredi yeshivot in Israel. Uh, anybody who has a computer can actually look at all, the, you know, every manuscript of the Masechet. And, uh, and people are doing that. And they're discovering that actually these texts really do, you know, the texts have histories and they, because they're, they were written by human beings, they have errors. And sometimes God discovering forbid. those errors can actually solve real problems that, you know, that Pilpul can't, um, or he can do it much more easily and convincingly. Um, so, and, you know, and then the Talmud is really, it's, a, it's an enormous book. So that actually, um, the digitization really does allow for searches that most people, um, anyone who doesn't know the entire shots by heart, really can't do. Sure. But now you can do it extremely easily. And then you can also ground the Talmud in all of, you know, rabbinic literature, which is just, a, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's an oceanic corpus. Yes. It's so, momentous um, here. So, but now you can actually do that. With, so, so with the Talmud, I think digitization really has changed things quite radically. So let me ask you, I think, the most important question in, in book history. Are books dying? 
No. Are we? Are is the codex form? Your your book makes a you know a stunning case for the movement from scroll to codex to other use you know, to rescrollization to other forms of media such as digitization. But what about the beloved codex? Is it, is it 20, 30, 100 years? Are we not going to see a book? No, I don't think so. And um, and my my uh, my strongest argument for that is the fact that ebooks do everything possible to look like books. So that you But know, so did manuscripts. What? But so yeah, did no, that's, manuscripts that's the rule when of, they first... Yeah, that's the rule of, right. of book history. And then but manuscripts, manuscripts have faded. Not, no well, not not entirely. You you not entirely you wrote your stories with hand? <laughs> um uh, and then published it. <laughs> no, but it, but actually, the word manuscript does not appear in the English language until about 1650. That is, say, a hundred years after print. And there are all sorts of printed forms that actually are basically frames for manuscripts that you fill in. And people actually continue to write manuscripts down till today. So. The manuscript's undergone a lot of changes, and its meaning has changed. I mean, one of the most interesting moments in Jewish book history is at the beginning of the 18th century, um, 200 years after print, when basically any middle-class person can afford to buy an illustrated, a fairly, you know, deluxe illustrated book because it's within anybody in the upper middle class's means, okay? What do really wealthy people do? Well, what they do is they commission scribes to write by hand books for them that imitate, look just like printed books. And they even have the, the lettering is based on Amsterdam letters. Um, they have the hatching that you find in, you know, engravings. Um, and they really, they, they try to look exactly like printed books. And sometimes you, you look at them and you can't tell the difference almost. Um, so, but those are handwritten books. So that so the our, codex, our, our books really aren't going. No, no, they're really. they're not gone. They will change, and they will be transformed in one way or another. But it's also, I think, it's impossible for us to say right now how they will change. We're historians, um, not prophets. Yeah, we're not prophets. Um, yeah, we're almost out of time. But I really must ask you this one other question. Um, what are your hobbies? Do you still write fiction? Do you still write, are you still interested in tragedy? In my footnotes, I often make up the page numbers. It gets very boring looking up the... <laughs> First grade scholarship, and, and, and there's, there's a number of people who consider my writing to be fiction. No, I mean, no, what happened was that, and I don't, um, I don't really write, um, I haven't given up on writing fiction, um, but more and more of the, of the scholarship that I do, I really view as a form of narrative. So a lot of my interest in telling stories, I've actually managed to, you know, transmute into my scholarship. And when I write articles, I, I sort of think of them as stories. Um, you know, and I, I like to tell scholarly stories. I think they're interesting. So um, that's how I've sort of kept up the, uh, the fiction writing. <laughs> so, but don't tell anybody about those page numbers. <laughs> oh, for sure not. <laughs> It'll be our little secret. <laughs> our little secret. And 10 million other people. Exactly. Professor Stern, thank you so much for talking pleasure. with me today. And... <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. 
please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.